God's Word, and it was uh, the book of First Corinthians was a letter to a specific church um, with a specific set of needs, and amazingly, two thousand years later, uh, this message is still very applicable to the Church of Jesus and the the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Um, just a little bit of recap from last Sunday. Uh, we talked about the differences between human wisdom and the wisdom of God. Paul was adamant that the wisdom of God was displayed through the cross of Jesus, through the sacrifice and the suffering of God's Son on the cross, that wisdom of God had become a stumbling block to those who refused to accept the message of the cross. Uh, they could not understand it because the wisdom of God cannot be received through human intellect. It cannot be understood by the carnal man. It can only be understood by spiritual people as spiritual truths are interpreted to spiritual, spiritual people by the Spirit. That's the only way we can receive the wisdom of God. It didn't come through persuasive or plausible words. In fact, Paul said he intentionally avoided speaking with uh, plausible words and human wisdom because he didn't want to rob the message of the cross of its power. However, he said that the Corinthians, even though they had believed in the message of the gospel, they weren't able to receive the deeper wisdom of God. And Paul was still having to give them simple stuff, milk instead of meat like they should have been uh, able to digest by this point. They were still needing to receive milk, needing to receive simple corrections for uh, their outward actions rather than being able to understand the deeper spiritual truths that Paul would have liked to share with them. And the reason they couldn't understand and receive the deeper truth, the deeper spiritual wisdom that Paul wanted to give them was because they were still fleshly. They were operating on carnal, carnal principles. They were living in the flesh. There was jealousy and strife among them. They're, they were attaching themselves to different teachers or different sets of teaching. And, and they were deriving their, uh, their identity from who they were following as they were following people instead of following Christ. So Paul concludes by saying that the day is coming when everyone's work is going to be tested. Um, and the sort that it is is going to be revealed, whether it's gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, or stubble. The day of the Lord is going to disclose what we are building on the foundation of Jesus. So while it's entirely possible for us to have received the gospel and believed in Jesus, we can be at the same time building things of no value on that foundation of Jesus. And it is my prayer that we, as a church, would grow into maturity where what we are building on the foundation of Jesus, because I think that probably almost all of us in here have believed in the message of the cross. We've received the message of the gospel. But it's my prayer that what we build on top of that is things of genuine value, uh, things that will withstand testing by fire. So now we go into chapter 
5 of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to read here. Chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5 is a short chapter, uh, and, and chapter 6 kind of builds on it for the most part. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go before the law to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now you remember that uh, Paul was responding in his letter to the Corinthians here. He was responding to things that he had uh, heard from them uh, through the party that they had sent. He was responding to questions, specific questions that they had asked. And he was also responding to reports that he had heard about the Corinthian church. Um, this was his second letter to the Corinthian church. He had spent uh, probably at least a year and a half in Corinth. So the, the Christians in Corinth, at least the original ones, were familiar with Paul's teaching and had interacted with him. Um, but in this letter, he's addressing specific concerns because of things that he had heard about them. And one of those things was, he said, there's a report that there's sexual immorality in the church of a kind that's not even tolerated by the pagans around you. Remember, Corinth was a very pagan, very sexually immoral city. Uh, some of the, the rulers of the city were known far and wide for their uh, sexual immorality. Corinth itself had a reputation of, of a lot of sexual immorality. But Paul was saying that in the church, they were allowing sexual immorality that it was not even accepted among the Gentiles around them. This was the report that he had heard about them. Um, now, it, it doesn't give us a lot of details about the case, but it says that a man has his father's wife. It could have been his stepmother. It could have been that his father divorced uh, this woman and that he later married her. There's not really any details on this, but Paul is saying whatever the case, this is a situation that should uh, that should shock everyone in the church. It would even shock outsiders, people who are not professing to walk with Christ. So it should definitely shock people in the church. And I don't know why they had glossed over this sin and had permitted it to continue unchecked in the church. There could be a lot of reasons. Maybe it was a false view of grace. There's, there, there may have been people who said, let's sin so that grace may abound. Paul talks about that in another place. That's still a very common response to sin. Well, if Jesus, the blood of Jesus covers our sin, it, it takes care of all sin, past, present, and future, then why not sin so that we can experience more grace? Maybe it had to do with the position of the person uh, who was living in this sin. He could have been a person of high rank, maybe a ruler in Corinth, or maybe he was of low rank and it didn't seem to them to be of much consequence what this person did because he was not highly esteemed. We don't have those details, but there's a lot of possible reasons for why sin 
was simply ignored and allowed to go on. Paul is saying to them, it's important that you see sin through God's perspective, through the way God sees it rather than through a human perspective. And that's one of the things that the, the modern church still deals with, is we tend to see sin from a human perspective rather than from God's perspective. And we need God to take our own perspective and align it with his so that we see things the way that he sees them. The solution was remove the offender from among you. Don't let him continue in your midst. This requires a a level of judgment. It requires that the church says, this is wrong, this is not something that we tolerate as followers of Christ. And we're going to put out this person from among us. And Paul said that the reason that the Corinthians had not done this is because they were arrogant. They were puffed up. Now we often hear that, we often hear kind of a, a different angle on it, that sin is not judged because we're, we're too humble to judge it. We're too humble to say, to, you know, to cast the first stone. And Paul is saying it's their arrogance and pride in their position in Christ that is preventing them from passing judgment on sin in their midst. And one of the things they didn't see is that they didn't see that one sin. It says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. They didn't see that one sin in the church actually affects everybody. They were arrogant in saying, well, that's his problem. That's between him and God. And I don't really, it's not up to me. It's not my business how he lives his life. If you put a little bit of leaven, yeast, into a lump of dough, you know what happens? The leaven reproduces, the the yeast reproduces rapidly and it produces carbon dioxide and it spreads throughout the entire dough and it makes the whole dough get inflated filled with little pockets of carbon dioxide. That's what leaven does. And Paul is saying that 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 little bit of sin, now he's not saying it's a small sin. He obviously not. He already said this is a gross sin. It's something that wouldn't even be accepted among those who don't profess to follow Christ. So he's not saying it's a small sin, but it's a little bit of sin relative to maybe a big church. And he's saying that one sin is going to have an impact on the entire body. You're not isolated. You are actually members one of another. You are a collective group, and you need to take ownership of that sin as though it were your own, rather than saying, what he does is none of my business. Now, this judgment has to be carried out with meekness, and mourning, you should rather be mourning shows that they're taking ownership of this, saying, this is us. This is who we are as a body. That, that this sin has been in our midst and we haven't done anything about it. You should be mourning. This requires humility, admission of collective failure, not just pointing at one person and saying, well, he's the problem, let's get rid of him. This shows a very different attitude saying, we as a body have had this sin among us. We take ownership of it. And that's when we can deal with it. That, that's when we can bring it 
to judgment without ourselves living in self-righteousness. Like Galatians says, if someone is overtaken in a fault, if someone is caught by surprise in a fault, let those who are spiritual among you restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. He tells them, you're going to do this when you're gathered together, when you are assembled as a group. This is not something that you're going to deal with in private and brush under the rug, but you're going to do it when you are collectively assembled. You bring this man into your midst, and like it says in in 1 Timothy, those who persist in sin rebuke before all so that the rest may stand in fear. This judgment was going to be carried out in a collective setting. And Paul says that, that he, he uses himself as an example. He says, even though I'm not present with you, I've already passed judgment on this sin. And I, I kind of wasn't sure exactly what he meant by that and by, by saying when my spirit is present with you. But I think, if I understand it correctly, he's saying that when we have God's spirit, we can make confident judgments about this sort of thing not because we see ourselves as better than the person than the person who is found to be in sin but because this is God's perspective on the matter and so he's saying with that authority from the Holy Spirit knowing that I have God's perspective on this issue I can say with confidence I'm passing judgment on this this kind of thing should not exist in the body of Christ and you can go forward with the same measure of confidence knowing that I'm right there, with, even though I'm not physically present, that you are doing this in the authority of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when you're present, when you're gathered together, and I'm, I'm there, my spirit is with you, and the power of the Lord Jesus. See, this is a judgment that goes far beyond an earthly sentence or an intellectual assessment of what's going on. This is God saying, Here's my perspective on the matter. Here's how I want you to live as a church. So the power of Jesus was backing the actions that they were about to take as a church. And Paul said, when you're gathered together, and I'm there with you in spirit, and the spirit of the Lord is present with you, deliver such a man to Satan. What does it mean to deliver a person to Satan? This is not just a verbal declaration, but something is happening in the spirit realm when the body of Christ gathers together and says, we will not tolerate sin in the body of Christ. We're passing judgment on it and we're delivering this person who's been persisting in sin over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is an awesome thing that God calls the body of Christ to. To deliver a person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We have a clear example of what happens when someone is delivered over to Satan in Job. When Satan came to God and and he wanted to test Job's faith to see what it was made of. And God said, I'm delivering him into your hand. Do whatever you want to him, except spare his life. And you know what the result was at the end of 
the devastation that Satan brought into Job's life? Do you know what he said? Do you know what he said when God showed up and talked to him at the end of it all? He said, before I had heard about you, but now I've actually seen you. I put my hand on my mouth. He said, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That was, that was the end result of that entire experience. The devastation, the ruin of his own personal life and belongings and his family and everything he had. And then encountering God after it. He said, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And Paul's hope was that this person who was going to be delivered to Satan by the church in a public demonstration of God's judgment on sin, that that would be the outcome as well. That through the destruction of his flesh by the devil, he would come to a place of repentance so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. If we miss the redemptive heart of the the judgment of sin in the context of the church, we dare not go forward with judgment of sin. We have to understand that God's heart, even in judging sin, is redemptive. It's redemptive for the body that is doing the judging, that is putting out from their midst someone who's persisting in sin. And it's redemptive for the person on whom the judgment is passed. God's heart in both of those aspects is redemptive. Paul says later on in chapter 11, he says that if we judged ourselves truly, he's talking to the Corinthians still, if you guys would pass judgment on yourselves truly, if you would align your judgment with God's judgment of what's going on in your life, then you wouldn't have to be judged by the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. And he also says that that God's judgment on the Corinthian church was leading to some of them becoming sick and some of them dying because they were not judging themselves rightly. Removal of sin from the body of Christ is imperative because the effect of sin in even just one person affects everyone. The Corinthians were boasting about their spirituality, about their knowledge, their enlightenment, and about the gifts of the Spirit that had been given them. And in doing so, they were saying, it doesn't matter how that person lives, because look at, look at how God's using me. Look at the gifts He's given me. Look at who I am in Christ. Look at my position in Christ. And Paul's saying you're being arrogant. Your boasting is not good. They needed a clean house for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. So he says, get rid of the old leaven so that you can live as you are because you really are unleavened. Now, in in the Old Testament, before the Passover, 
the, the people of Israel were required to remove all leaven from their house. In fact, they would go through their house and they would carefully inspect every surface for crumbs of bread or anything that might contain leaven in it. And they would have to completely clean out their house and have no leaven in the house for, I think it was seven days, before they could take part in the sacrificial lamb who represented their redemption, who represented the, the price being paid for their redemption. And Paul is saying, you Corinthians are sitting there partaking of the Passover and you still have that old leaven that represents sin in yourselves. You're not willing to actually put that out of your life so that you can live as you really are, as unleavened people. Now, we remember what Paul said in chapter 1, right? He said, you've been called, you've been sanctified, you've been called into a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is faithful to work in you to present you guiltless in the day of the Lord. So he wanted them to be clear about their identity, but he's saying your lives need to match up with what you're professing. Your lives need to, to, to match the, the positional justification that you're holding on to. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, walk in a manner worthy of God. He told the Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you've been called. He told the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he told the Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Because if we have been sanctified, and if we have been justified through the sacrifice of Jesus, then we also need to put out of our lives the things that oppose the gospel of Jesus. And the Corinthians hadn't been willing to do that. They were living in arrogance and pride, saying, that's not going to affect us. What he does is his business, not mine. He's saying, only then can you celebrate the festival. Because Christ and his, his redemptive work are to be celebrated. They're to be celebrated by the church of Jesus, collectively, but always in sincerity and truth. Not living one way and professing something different. The, the Corinthians' flippancy towards sin probably contributed to the way that they were uh, abusing the Lord's Supper. And we'll look at that later in, in chapter 11. The way that, that they disregarded the sanctity of the death of Jesus, his sacrifice for them. They disregarded the way that they were observing it. Because of their flippant disregard for sin in their midst. Now Paul tells them, he said, I wrote to you earlier, and now he's making a clarification. I wrote to you earlier that you should not, that you should not um, have anything to do with immoral people. But he's saying it's not the people from outside that you're, that you're supposed to not have anything to do with. It's actually the people inside the church that you need to pass judgment on. If they are living in immorality, if they're greedy, swindlers, dishonest in business, 
if they're idolaters, if there's someone who's a reviler, that's simply someone who slanders or rants or scolds, or someone who's a drunkard, someone who's using alcohol in excess, not the people from outside, but the people in the church. If you see these things among yourselves, don't have anything to do with those people. And I think probably the Corinthians had taken what Paul said in his, in his earlier letter and had applied it to people outside the church rather than the people inside the church. You know what? We still tend to do that. We still tend to look outward and, and look at how bad those people out there are rather than examining ourselves and dealing with the unrighteousness in our own selves and passing judgment on that. Paul says these judgments are for people that call themselves brother, that call themselves sister. And this is in the context of a local body watching out for what's actually going on in their own midst, watching out for how they are living their own lives, watching out for each other, saying it doesn't just matter how I live, it matters how you live, because the way I live affects you and the way you live affects me. And he says, don't even eat with people like that, with people who are living in disregard for the sacrifice of Jesus, who continue in sin. Don't associate with them. Don't hang out with them. Because if you do, it's going to affect you. Purge out the evil person from among you, just like the old leaven. The leaven needs to be purged out of the house before you eat the Passover Purge out the evil person from among you because that sin in your midst will affect you. Then he goes on to talk about how they were dealing with grievances between themselves. Here again, this was an issue of how brother was dealing with brother. He's not talking about what's going on outside the church. But he's saying when someone has a a grievance or a dispute among you, you guys are going out and and taking each other to the law. You're you're, um, suing each other for grievances that should be resolved among you. And it was bringing a reproach to the name of Christ because they were dragging each other to the law, fighting for their rights. Does that sound American at all? And he gives a couple of reasons for why they should not take their grievances to the law. One is because worldly judgment is unrighteous judgment. It's, it's not necessarily that Paul had a problem with the legal system in Corinth, but he's saying there is a different level of judgment that you guys are supposed to be exercising. Because saints have authority. Don't you know that you're going to judge the world? In fact, you're going you're gonna to sit with Christ and judge angels? And he brings them into some spiritual realities that they must not have been aware of. Now, Like I said, this was not necessarily Paul saying the Corinthian legal system is bad. You guys need to do everything in-house. 
the, the legal system was actually pretty good relative to a lot of places. Uh, I don't know that we have a lot of documentation of the legal system in Corinth, but the legal system in Athens, which was very likely very similar to what occurred in, in Corinth, was like this. If you had a problem with someone, uh, you would take them to court, to a court known as the 40. Actually, before you did that, before you took them to court, you had to go through a process where uh, each party in the dispute would select an arbitrator. So let's say Mike and I have a, have a fight, and uh, he didn't pay me for a job that I did or whatever. So to settle this dispute, we're required to go find an arbitrator. So Micah chooses one, and I choose one. And then we choose a third arbitrator who is mutually agreed upon to, to kind of be the go-between. And if we can't work that out... Then we're going to go to the court known as the 40, and they're going to um, assign an arbitrator, a public arbitrator. And this was uh, all citizens, all men in their 60th year were required to serve as an arbitrator. So they're going to assign arbitrators to our case to see if they can't work out uh, the, the deal between us, whatever the grievance is. If that doesn't work... Then we go, we go to a jury. And for smaller cases, maybe if it's less than, than $100 or so, realistic figure here, uh, we're going to have a jury of like 201 people. If it's uh, over $100 or so, we're going to have a jury of 401 people. And if the case is really big, we might have a jury of between 1,000 and 6,000 jurors. And these are all citizens who are above the age of 30, they're all required to put in their time as jurors. The jurors present themselves in the morning and they're assigned by lot to the different cases that come up. So the, the, the Romans and, and the Greeks of that area had a very, a very elaborate justice system. They took pride in settling matters fairly, in letting people's complaints be heard. And it wasn't that the system itself was bad, but Paul was saying, you guys are taking people, you guys are taking each other, brothers, to courts, to people that have no standing in the church. There's a different level of judgment that is to be exercised by those who are followers of Christ. And it's because we have the Spirit of God. It's because we're not passing judgment from a human perspective, but from God's perspective, because we have decided that our perspective is going to be under his. We come under the way God sees things. And so ultimately, it's his judgment. And Paul says the saints, the Corinthians, the Corinthian saints, you guys have authority. You've been given authority by God to pass judgment where judgment is needed. You have wisdom that's given to you from above, not just earthly wisdom. The anointing that you've received, John says, his anointing teaches you about everything. And Paul tells them, you're going to judge the world. You're going to sit with Christ on his judgment throne, and you are going to judge the world. And if you're judging on the judgment day, how much more should you be willing to judge matters that are in your midst right now rather than dragging each other to the court of law? 
And then he says, shouldn't you rather be willing to be defrauded and suffer wrong than to take your brother to court and fight about these things? And here's really what's at the bottom of this. They were not willing to give up their own rights to be defrauded. Instead, they were insistent on fighting for their rights and bringing their own brother, their own sister, to judgment before the law. And Paul makes the appeal to them again and again. It's your brothers. Your brothers. Act like brothers. Treat each other like brothers. I do do that to my own kids. She's your sister. (laughs) Now treat her like your sister. Love her. He's your brother. Treat him like your brother. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, he's, Paul tells them, right on the heels of this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now he's making a contrast between the people in the church and those outside the church, those who have not been redeemed by the gospel. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. The Corinthians forgot that they were washed, that they were cleansed from these things. And they allowed the works of the flesh to get to take root in themselves again after having been washed. Such were some of you. And I want to remind you that that's not what you are anymore because you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You were justified. The record of your life, of your past, of who you used to be, it's all been set right before God and you have to remember this and you have to live from that place of having been washed of having been sanctified of having been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God don't revert from the high calling that you've been called to in Jesus to live like the Gentiles around you are living like those who don't know Jesus are living In verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me. And I think he's quoting something back to the Corinthians. The Corinthians boasted of their knowledge. And one of the teachings that was coming into the Corinthians church, this was kind of pre-Gnosticism. But one of the teachings that was infiltrating the, the Corinthian church was that what you did in your body didn't really matter. Because you're spiritual. Your connection to God is spirit connection. And so the way you live your life doesn't really matter because you've been justified. You're in Christ. That's who you are. And on one side, there were those who were saying, what you do doesn't matter. So do whatever you feel like doing because what you do in your body doesn't, isn't of any consequence. And on the other side, there were those who were saying that whatever was done in the body was bad. So... 
both sides were saying that the spirit was the only thing that mattered and the body was either inherently bad or neither good or bad. It just didn't really matter what you did. And Paul is saying, yeah, you say everything is lawful, but not everything is helpful. There's a law of excellence that I'm calling to you to as a church. That's so far above that law of everything is lawful. I'm free in Christ. I have liberty in Christ. And he told the Galatians the same thing, that, that they were using their liberty as an occasion for the flesh instead of in love serving one another. And Paul's appeal to them is that what you do in your body does matter. The way you live your life does matter. Yes, you've been justified through, through Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, but that needs to be lived out in you as the church because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So they were judging things by whatever was lawful instead of what can I do that will be helpful What can I do that will help the body of Christ grow? What can I do that will help me grow in my relationship with Jesus that will help me to be more like him? See, they were were exercising their freedom. And it it had become an occasion of stumbling for the church. And Paul says, yes, so yeah, the... The body is for food and food is for the body, but it's all going to be destroyed. What's important is that your lives are consecrated to Jesus and that you're living for him. So what are some things that are lawful but are unprofitable? We need to look at our own lives and say, is the way that I'm living marked by not just by what? I can do what I'm allowed to do because I'm in Christ? Or is it marked by what will help other people grow in their relationship with Christ? What will help other people come to the knowledge of Christ? What will help me be more like Jesus? Because God, who raised up Christ, will also raise up these bodies. What you do in these bodies is of consequence. That's his appeal to them. And he says, you are members of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Do you live your life in such a way that it's obvious that you are a member of the body of Christ? Is this what Jesus would do if he were living in your body? Because he is. Because you collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's the higher law that he's calling them to. Saying, remember, you guys are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. What you do in your bodies matters. If there's sin in the church, it matters. If there's things in your own life that are not aligned with the gospel of Jesus, it matters. And because of this, flee from sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord. And I don't know if there was, there was other forms of sexual immorality in the church honestly it's likely that there were with all the the sexually immoral influence around them and the fact that they tolerated sexual immorality to a level as gross as they allowed it 
it's likely that there were other sexually immoral influences in the church. And Paul is saying, remember, you guys are the dwelling place of God. You can't take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. Flee from sin that is going to contaminate the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Develop a sensitivity to what is pleasing to the Holy Spirit. Because He lives in you. And so when we're confronted with a decision, it's not about, is this okay? Is it lawful? It's about, what does the Holy Spirit want? What does He want out of my life? How does He want me to live? Because I'm His dwelling place. And if we commit sexual immorality, we're bringing the dwelling place of God into union with sin and sinful practices. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Have you forgotten that the Holy Spirit is living in you and that He is to dictate the way that you live? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Remember this, Corinthians, and remember this, people from Cleveland Believers. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price. You don't get to choose the way you live your life. God gets to choose how you live your life through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So glorify God in your body. God wants to take us from a place of making decisions rationally and based on what seems okay to a place of being in step with the Holy Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. So how's that going to look for us this week? How's that going to impact the decisions, the choices that we make this week? How is it going to impact the way I look at my own self and pass judgment on the attitudes and the things in my own life that are not in step with the Spirit? We need the Holy Spirit to bring that to light in our own lives. Otherwise, these are just empty knowledge, more information that's not going to help us unless the Holy Spirit makes it applicable to the way we are living.